Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I bid every one among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. For as in one body, we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ." and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, and he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who contributes in liberality, He who gives aid with zest. He who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was in the winter of 1973. The musical, Rachel Lily Rosenblum, was closing. Actually, it had never opened. It was so bad that it didn't ever see its first performance. And they canceled it at a huge loss of money. The choreographer of the show was a man named Tony Stevens. His assistant was Nishan Peacock. They'd been working hard on this musical, and it just never came together. They believed the real reason was because of the director and the producer. They said they didn't know how to put together a Broadway musical and bring it to life. And their frustration was they had seen this happen over and over again. Both were dancers and both had been a part of these Broadway musicals that lasted one day. Another one lasted four days. Another one lasted actually two months. Show after show just wasn't making it, and they felt that so often these directors did not show any kind of respect to the dancers. They didn't want to hear their thoughts about what was going on, and they found it so frustrating. They went home for Christmas, and both of them were just thinking about what had happened and this disaster. And out of that, when they came back after the first of the year, they thought, Why don't we get together a group of dancers, some of the better people that we have. Let's get them together and we'll have them just talk about their life and dancing. I bet 
together we could all begin thinking about how to write a show, how to produce a show, how to choreograph the show. We know what we're doing. We could do this if we all came together and worked on a project. They really got excited about the idea, but they knew that their names weren't big enough names to draw lots of people together. And so they turned to Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett was a well-known choreographer, someone who had already had great success. He had been a dancer, but now he had turned to choreographing these shows. And so they knew he was a star, and if they put out the word, Michael's going to be here, then people might decide they wanted to come and to learn more. Well, they approached Michael, and he agreed. He liked the idea. And so it was that Tony and Michon started making the phone calls to all these different dancers that they knew. Some said, absolutely, we'll be there. Others said, yeah, we're not interested. In the end, they had a couple dozen who had agreed to come January the 26th, 1974. They were going to come to the Lower East Side there in Manhattan to the Nicholson Exercise Center. They'd been able to get the second floor where they could meet there and for free, and so they agreed to let them come. They would actually come at midnight. See, you think about it, so many of them already had shows they were in, and you had to wait until they were through performing before they then could even travel in the city to get somewhere to come to this special gathering. So it was around midnight when they all started showing up. They climbed the stairs to the second floor, Tony and Michon were there to meet them. And after most of them were there, they began doing some stretching and warm-up. And then Tony began showing them some dance numbers, and they began dancing together. But several of them were thinking, I've been dancing all night long. I don't need to be dancing some more. But the whole idea was to get them remembering why they were doing this together, because they all loved to dance. And after they had done it for a little while... Then Michael Bennett showed up with his good friend, Donna McKechnie. Michael came in. He brought with him lots of deli sandwiches, which got woofed down. And then he sat them down in a circle and laid down the ground rules. He said, I want us to go around the circle and I want to ask you, what's your name? Where do you come from? And why are you a dancer? And after we go all the way around the circle, then we're going to come back and we're going to Ask more questions to learn about your life, who you are, how did you grow up? You're free to ask questions of one another, but we'll go all the way around. Everybody will speak. And then he went and turned on the tape recorder, the old reel-to-reel. And he started it off talking to them about his life. And then Tony jumped in, and then the next, and they went around. Now you have to understand, these people who had gathered in that room, they knew most each other, at least by name or face. They were competitors with each other. They were all trying for the same spots. So they knew one another. You knew something of their persona that you would see. Many despised each other. They felt threatened by each other. You were a competitor with one another. And yet they sat down and began to talk. And as they began to talk, people started opening up and getting honest. 
And as they got honest and started talking about their life and the pain they had had as a child or what has happened to them, people began to cry. People were stunned. I didn't really know you. And one person was sharing and another one more and more and they began talking and this incredible experience began unfolding. I want to read you what Tony Stevens would later say about it. There was a lot of pain in the room, a lot. And there was a lot more guilt for not having known somebody else's pain. A lot of, I've been your rival all this time. We've competed for the same parts. Yet everybody realized they were in the room because now they were dancers. We all understood that joy nobody else could ever experience just dancing together. An incredible bond was created. Something started to happen as they opened up and told their stories. The bond between one another and how they started to feel about each other changed dramatically. And it became so powerful they talked and they talked and they talked until they heard the church bells on that Sunday morning at noon. They had been together for 12 hours. 12 hours sharing and talking and telling the stories. They knew they needed to go. And so they sat in this circle and they held hands and closed their eyes just to feel the love and the power. And when they opened their eyes and turned loose, everybody was crying. That night while they had been meeting, it had been snowing in New York City. And they walked out to this beautiful virgin snow there on the streets. And as they walked into that Sunday morning, they knew they'd never be the same. Michael took those 12 hours of interviews and tapes. He would have two more sessions, other people who agreed to come and to talk. And in the end, he would have about 30 hours of tapes of people telling their stories. And as he went away and started listening to these tapes, one of the things he discovered was there were some themes that keep getting repeated. In fact, one of the things they discovered was how many people who were dancers came from alcoholic homes. There had been so many struggles, so much pain, bringing them to where they were, yet they also discovered how much these people loved what they were doing and would not do anything else. Some stories were just individually so powerful. He had listened to them and he finally started thinking about how could he put all this into a musical. And he began to think outside the box and an idea came. What if we had a musical about an audition and let people kind of see behind the scenes? What is it really like? And all the stories would be the true stories told by these dancers. We could use their story and you'd get to see people audition and then after you got to know them all, you would see some being cut. And you'd feel that pain of the rejection. It would go from 24 to 17 to 8. But then you'd see the 8 come together as one. 
to be a part of something bigger than themselves, moving together, where you really weren't looking at individual stories. Now you were looking at one singular sensation, something so powerful. Fascinating thing was, he then assembled a team, the team for, to write the music and to write the lyrics and to write the book. Michael was going to be the, choreograph, the choreographer of the whole thing, the director. But he made the decision that everybody had to audition for the musical. Just because your story became a part of the story, you didn't have that part. You had to audition just like everybody else. And so people came to audition and some of them actually read for their part, which they said was really strange when you're reading verbatim what you said one night and you remember that's what you had said. And then other people came and they heard someone reading verbatim what they had said, but they were asked to read a different part. And so in the end, these 24 dancers were cast. It would be such a huge success when it came out. Something totally different. You think about it. No glitzy costumes. No fancy sets. No. It was people dressed in what they used to dance in. They were in a theater, the idea being. That's where you'd come to audition and to rehearse. Such a whole different setting. And the sole purpose was to help you get to know that person. And what happened was, what made it a success as we watched this musical was quite often we identified with those people. We understood the pain they were going through. And if you didn't identify with them and it wasn't your story, it was so powerful you became compassionate and you understood. You didn't want anybody to get cut. But then when you saw them come together and do something so great, couldn't help but make you feel good. They became one and something bigger than themselves. That's what Paul was hoping would happen with the church. Paul's great desire was that the church would be one. One singular sensation. Sharing the message of God's love. For Paul, he knew we were all going to be so different. Here he was trying to start the church there in the Gentile world and Galatia and Corinth and Ephesus. And the people who came to be the church, well, there were Jews and Greeks and slave and free and rich and poor and male and female. Everybody from different places on the social strata ladder. And Paul kept saying, we're going to be one in Christ. We're not going to be divided. We're going to be one. That's why he was writing this letter to the Romans. He had never been to Rome. He had never been, he didn't start that church. But it was such a powerful church. And he was trying to cast a vision for what we would be. One people. One. Even though we're all going to be individuals, so different. But can we come together and treat each other with respect? Can we get to know one another? And for me to find out... I do relate to your story. I didn't know that about you. You didn't know this about me. Can we become one? That was his dream. It's still the dream for the church today. That we can be different. 
And yet we get to know one another and treat each other with respect. You become one. When the chorus line opened, it opened on July 25th, 1975. And when it opened, it was a huge success. It got nominated for 12 Tony Awards. It won nine. It would win the Pulitzer Prize in 1976 for drama. The show would run for 6,137 performances and become the longest running musical in Broadway history at that time. I mean, that was unbelievable. Today, it is still the seventh longest running musical in Broadway history, but it became the longest one in its day. And you didn't have any fancy costumes. You didn't have any fancy sets. You had a group of people standing on the stage, 17 people telling their story, and you're feeling it and watching them be molded into one singular sensation. I believe that Paul was believing that we as the church, if we could gather in the Spirit of Christ, we who are individuals who think differently and have all these different stories and backgrounds, we could be one who truly shares God's love and bring hope in this world. I want us to look at what Paul had to say to the Romans this morning. First of all, Paul tells them, let love be genuine. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let love be genuine. You know, it was the belief that the church should be a place where everyone can come and be accepted. Where you feel like you belong, that you're welcome. Let love be genuine. Honor each other. So often, these people are all coming from different backgrounds. Jews and Gentiles, the powerful, the weak, the rich and the poor. Could they all come together and honor one another, to love one another? I look at our world today and how fractured we are and how polarized we are. Is there some place we can come and set all that aside and feel called by the love of Christ to create a place where people feel accepted and loved and welcome, we included? In your life, have you ever had a time when you felt like you're on the outside and you want to be on the inside? Have you ever had those times when you feel excluded? That somehow you're not good enough? You're not acceptable? I think we all have. Paul was calling us to be something different, where people come together. You, you think about the dancers. My goodness, these dancers have to deal with rejection all the time. They go audition, and you audition, and most of the time, you don't get picked. You're told, we don't want you. I called my friend Dan Michike, who is the musical director for Wicked on Broadway right now, and I was asking him about this musical and some of the other ones, like we're going to be doing Wicked in a couple of weeks. So I just wanted to talk about some of this. And we got to talking about dancers. And he said, Bob, you need to understand, in our union, 
3% of our members are working at any one time across the United States. 3%. It's less than that in New York. So when people come to audition, he said, if there's an opening for a, a dancer in a musical, hundreds of people are wanting to line up to audition. It is so intense. You are so competitive, just like they were talking about in The Gathering. That's why they made it into one of the songs for the musical that we just heard. I got to get this job. And you're talking about all the people you're competing with. And you feel like I'm not being chosen. The sense of rejection is so strong. We all have felt it. It was Donna McKimmy who that night got very honest about her life story. She actually was already very successful as a dancer, one of the more successful dancers there in the gathering. But she started talking about her growing up. As a child, when she was a little girl, her father was off in the service. And so they had an 8 by 10 picture there on her dresser, and every night she'd go kiss that picture goodnight. And then one day her mom came to her and said, we're going to get dressed up so we can go meet your dad. He's coming home. And when she saw him, it scared her to death. This person was alive. She, she didn't know him. She was terrified of him. She said it was six months before she would go near her dad. And it didn't help that he wasn't very warm. Now she would go through and start telling her story of how as a little girl, she just started running around the house with her hands up, wanting her daddy to ask her to dance. She wanted him to be an Indian chief. To say to her, Maggie, you want to dance? I'd love to dance, Daddy. When her mom saw her running around the house holding her hands up, she thought she's trying to be a ballerina, and so she signed her up for the ballet. She started taking ballet lessons, and there she found she loved being at the ballet. That became her home. That became her salvation. So when she told her story, they then turned it into the song, at the ballet that you heard just a moment ago. That really is the story of Donna McKimmy's life. I hope you go home and read the words again and understand who it's talking about and what's being said. To read you just the beginning, Daddy always thought that he married beneath him. That's what he said. That's what he said. When he proposed, he informed my mother that he was probably her last chance. And though she was 22, she married him. Life with my dad wasn't ever a picnic, more like a come as you are. But everything was beautiful at the ballet. Graceful men lift lovely girls in white. And yes, everything was beautiful at the ballet. I was happy at the ballet. That's when I started class. How many people have longed to have their daddy say, I love you, and they never heard it? To have daddy say, do you want to dance? It doesn't happen. 
when the audiences came and they heard that song, they could relate. I want to be loved. And yet I may not have gotten it. We all can understand that. And what does it mean for us to discover that we do have a Father that loves us? A Heavenly Father. And it's because you and I have come to discover that heaven, the love of a Heavenly Father, that you and I know that there's somewhere we belong and we are accepted. And if you know you belong and you're accepted, then you can share that kind of love. You can create the space where people know they're accepted. What a commitment you and I need to make to create our homes as a place where people know they are accepted and they are loved. We need to do it with our friends. We need to do it where we work. We need to do it at our church. That it's a place full of different people, backgrounds and stories where we let love be genuine and we want to outdo each other in showing honor so that all people can come and know that they belong and they are loved. That's what Paul wanted for the church. Secondly, Paul said, present yourself as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. I got to thinking about that, what Paul had done in order for him to share God's love, to go on these missionary journeys, oh, he paid a price. It was a sacrifice. A sacrifice that he paid, Timothy, Silas, Barnabas, the disciples. All these people who felt called by God to share his love, oh, they paid a price. They would sacrifice. And they wouldn't change a thing. They were people who felt that call and they were so committed and it's what gave their life meaning and purpose. They wouldn't change a thing. And I got to thinking, Paul's asking us as individuals, will you present yourself as a living sacrifice? Do you have a passion where you feel God is calling you to something in this world where you're willing to sacrifice? How many times you and I have something we really would love to do, but we're afraid we're going to be rejected if we try, and because we don't want to be rejected, then we pull back. Don't live with regrets. Know your calling and present yourself as a living sacrifice to be the best you can be at the thing you feel called to do. That's what these dancers did. That's what they learned when they met in the gathering. As they were in the gathering and they all began talking about it, it's like, I can't do anything but dance. That was their passion, to be the best that they could be. And it gave their life meaning and purpose, even if it was hard, with lots of rejection. It was Tony Stevens who opened up and began talking about his life. Tony Stevens who said that he grew up in St. Louis his family was Italian, and they loved to dance. He said he wound up having a, um, an aunt who was a nun, and she was known as Sister Rubberlegs. She loved a jitterbug, 
and people would watch her. She was good. But he said his mom and dad loved to dance. And boy, when they got out on the floor, people would just stop and watch. And when they'd go into pulling you between their legs and throwing you, they would do that with him. And he loved it. They signed him up for dance lessons when he was three years old. When he was four years old, they put on a recital. And they asked him to be the poodle. He didn't go back to dance class. He didn't like being a poodle. Finally, when he was eight, he agreed to go back again. And at eight years old, he found it came so easy for him. Other people were struggling with the dance steps. They, he just knew them. It was easy. And soon he started taking three classes, four classes, five classes a week. And he discovered his passion was to dance. And more than anything, he wanted to dance on Broadway. And he worked so hard and he sacrificed so much. His senior year, he was living in St. Louis and they had this um, outdoor place where it was the Metropolitan Opera. And they'd put on like 10 shows from May to September. Lots of opportunities for dancers. And so he started working in the wintertime. That's what you did. You worked in the wintertime to figure out the part you wanted in a, one of these musicals. And, and then you got ready so you could audition in March. And if you got the part, you made real money in the summertime, even as a kid. And so he worked and worked for this part and he came and auditioned. And he didn't get the part. It was rejection. We don't choose you. But he loved it so much that he kept coming to the rehearsals just to be around his friends and seeing what was going on. And just a few days into rehearsals, he was sitting there as they were dancing and the kid who got the part that he wanted came out and jumped up and did a turn and landed and broke his ankle right in front of Tony. And he went down and the director said, can anybody take this kid to the hospital? Who can go to the hospital? I can. And the choreographer looked at him and went, I remember you. When you take him to the hospital, when you come back, you got the job. Tony came back and he was dancing. He danced all summer long. He started meeting all these dancers from New York who were there for the summer. And when they packed up in September to go back, he was packed up and he went with them. And never came back. It was his passion. But he learned a couple things. What he learned that summer was dancing is hard. And as they say, every night is opening night. And every night can be closing night. One of the questions they asked in the circle when the gathering was, what will you do when you can't dance anymore? And no one had an answer for that. They hadn't even considered it. And yet when I was talking to Dan Michike, he was saying to me, you know, you're lucky if you go past 30. Almost no one goes past 40. You'll have to do something else. And it is the truth about life. You may feel God's calling and you're passionate about what you're doing and what that may be in your teens and 20s. It will continue to evolve until the day you die. But if you're not passionate about something and you're being called to be something, then you'll die ahead of time on the inside. To present yourself as a living sacrifice, asking God to use you and help you be the person you're called to be, 
It is so easy to be afraid we'll be rejected and to hold back. The one thing these dancers were all saying was, I won't live with regret. I'm going to dance. And that's why we will be hearing the song in just a little while, What I Did for Love. That song is not about a relationship with a person. It's all about dancing and a person who wants to dance. What did I do for love? What are you doing for love? What's your passion? Present yourself as a living sacrifice to be the best you can be. Don't live with regrets. And so third, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is, don't just be fit into a box that the world thinks you should be fit into. The question is, let God renew your mind. If you live in the Spirit of Christ, how will you begin to look at your life in this world differently? And let this prove the will of God, what is good and acceptable and kind. The will of God is going to be good and acceptable, kind. Prove that will of God. You know, there's an interesting tension that goes on here in this passage that's really calling us, be that person God has called you to be. Go be your best person. And then Paul immediately goes on to say, and do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Remember, for we are one with another, one part with the other. We are all different. We will appear different in the way we think and where we come from, our stories. God will use you as an individual. But that individual can also be molded into something bigger than themselves and you become a part of one singular sensation. If you stay grounded, you're a part of something bigger than yourself that God can use to literally help change this world. To be a part of that. You know, Michael, Michael Bennett was truly an amazing man so creative. Broadway was struggling back in the 1970s. You may not remember in the 1970s, Broadway had lots of theaters shut down. It was the home to pimps and prostitutes and drug dealers. They were struggling. And this show would really help to turn Broadway when it came out and it was so successful. But to say I'm going to create a show where there's no fancy costumes, there's no fancy sets, we're just going to come out and interview and talk and you get to know people. I mean, what a strange idea. But it was brilliant. Brilliant. Again, when I was talking to Dan Michike, he said he really was a brilliant guy. He was a genius. He would think in new and different ways. He really loved dancers. He had been a dancer. He cared for these dancers. But he also struggled. Remember I've told you before about Walter Anderson, the man who was the editor of Parade Magazine, and how Walter Anderson was able to interview presidents and kings and, and politicians and uh, movie stars and sports heroes, and he would interview all these people, and whenever he interviewed them, he would always ask them by the, at the end of the interview, one last question, whenever you're alone by yourself, do you ever think to yourself, 
What will they do if they find out I'm just me? And he said, I never failed to get a smile, a nod, a yes. That no matter who they were and how powerful and successful, there's still that feeling of, they don't really know me. I'm just a normal person. The insecurities. Well, Michael Bennett, he struggled. As success brought success and he had more and more he would later come out and say, I kept wondering when they will finally figure out I'm a fraud. He wasn't a fraud. He was a genius. He was brilliant. But you can feel bad about yourself and insecure. And so how do you try to cover that up? You put on these fronts. You start doing all kinds of things to make up for the fact that I feel like I'll be rejected. I'm not good enough. I have this fear. Michael... Well, he began to spend his millions that he was making, a house in the Hamptons and Rolls Royce and fur coats and you name it. He just began buying more and more. And then he started doing drugs to kill the pain. Never works. The more drugs he did, the more paranoid he became. And as he became more and more paranoid, he began to pull back from friends, close relationships, all the people that he had loved, people who had loved him, he pulled back more and more until finally he moved to Tucson, Arizona. He had AIDS. He began to push away everyone he'd been close to. And he would die at 44 years old, basically alone. A creative, brilliant person who lost his footing in his way. And it can happen to us all. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you prove God's will that is accepting and good and kind. Remember who you are. For Paul is trying to call the church together, all these different people, all backgrounds, and he wants us to be the person God calls to be. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Let God use you. But then remember, you're called to be a part of something bigger. Let love be genuine. Come together and let God use you as His church. As one singular sensation. The ability to share His love and bring hope in the world. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.
Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.